Will you pray with me? Father God, I just want to thank you again for an opportunity to be here in this space. Lord, I pray that as we, we approach your word here in a minute, Lord, that you illuminate it for us, that it's not just words written thousands and thousands of years ago, but they're words spoken to us today. God, we pray that you meet each of us where we are, uh, rejoice with those of us who are rejoicing, mourn with those who are mourning, ultimately help us gain a better understanding of who you are and how you relate to our lives. May we leave with a greater love for you that drives us to a greater love towards each other. Amen. All right. Um, so we have, through this year, have been working through the book of Genesis, and, uh, and we have made it to Genesis 4. Um, every once in a while, um, when we plan our sermon series out quite a bit in advance, usually months out uh, on the series that we're going to go to, and it's, it's actually uncanny how often particular weeks fall um, fall into a space that fits perfectly with what's going on in the world around us. And so I just want to open today. Um, we're going to be talking about the story of Cain and Abel again, um, which is a story of violence, a uh, story of pain and hurt, um, in a week in which uh, Michigan, uh, the United States, has experienced another instance of massive pain and hurt, right? Our hearts this, this morning break with the community at Michigan State. Um, you know, this is, I'm not going to stand up here. This is not a political statement at all. Uh, it's just a, a human statement, uh, just broken by violence again, right? Uh, it, I actually, um, when I saw the news report come through again this time, I was, I was a little frustrated because the first, when, when the notification on my phone came first, um, almost met it with indifference, right? It was just like, okay, here we go again. I didn't even think, I didn't see where it was or what was happening. It was just, uh, I saw a shooter and then kind of almost was indifferent. And then when I actually started to read it, I, I, got, I was mad that I was indifferent because it's not something you should be indifferent for. And I started to realize that it was hitting close to home and that there, I know people who are at Michigan State. I know families who have loved ones who are there. And I got, then I got mad and sad and frustrated and all the things that we're feeling. And uh, I think we're all in, probably feeling similarly in that way. I don't know what we do to fix it. Um, I, I, I just know that, that it's not okay. Um, and so hopefully we can continue to hold them in our prayers that way. It fits, though, uh, with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, last week, we, we started the story of Cain and Abel, and we, we asked the question that's going to run through the next few weeks here, am I my brother's keeper? What's my responsibility more morally in this world that we're in? And last week when we looked at Cain, we saw... Uh, that God had, had, had told Cain that he has personal responsibility over his temptations, over, his, over, his, over the things uh, that are, that are pull, trying to pull him away from the flourishing that God created. Uh, we focused on the fact that God had said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to devour you. And God says to him, I need you to master it. So we talked about personal responsibility last week, how each of us has the personal responsibility to deal with the stuff that we've got going on in our lives. We also saw that there's hope there, too, that God says that you can master it. You can master the things that are, that are, that are constantly tugging and pulling at you. Now, I do just want to give one note of clarity on that, because uh, I had somebody come up to me after the service last week and just ask about things like mental health, right? We talked a little bit about sin last week, um, and we talked about how God wants us to master our sin. And so somebody just straight up asked me, is, is mental health, do you consider that, a, like, a mental health problem, do you consider that sin? Uh, 
And I, I was, first of all, I thought that was a fantastic question, and I just want to address that a minute because I want to hope that, that there aren't other people caught up on that. Just to remind you all, when we're talking about sin, sin in, in, in Greek uh, is, a, is, a, is the word hamartia. It's an archery term. So essentially, there's a target you're aiming at, and if you miss that target, you sin. In the, the way the scripture talks about that is there's a target we're aiming at to flourish, and when we miss it, we're not flourishing in that way, and that's sin. So in the broadest aspect of things, all health brokenness in the world is a result of sin, right? The fact that we have heart trouble, or the fact that we can break bones, or the fact that we have all these different disorders is a, is a, is a result of sin existing, of, a, of the flourishing that God intended being missed. Not necessarily because someone did something, but because we live in a world that's broken. So in that respect, sure, those things can be considered sin. What we were, all, that we, all we were trying to express in that space then is that we do the work to try to make that better. Uh, with something like mental health, which, can be, which has, this, has this space that um, has been messed up, especially by the church over the years, um, what, what we're saying is if you're, ha- if you're struggling with that, it's not a value judgment that you're somehow wrong or you're somehow sinful or your value is less. It's just saying, hey, take a step towards helping yourself with that. I'd say the same thing if you had high blood pressure, right? Go to a doctor and, and, and see if there's something they can do to help you lower your blood pressure so that you can flourish better, so that you can be healthier, that you can function better. The same is true with our mental health. If you're in a space where, where things aren't clicking the way they're supposed to, um, yeah, that's because we live in a broken world and our bodies don't work exactly like they should. Uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of to say, I'm going to take my next step and I'm going to see if I can find some help out there. Uh, if medicine helps you get, that, get your, your brain chemicals where they ought to be, perfect. Great. If that's a step to help you flourish in those ways, do those things. That's, that's what we're talking about there. I, I, just wanna, I wanted to address that to make sure that no one heard that, you, that there should be a shame associated with that or, or anything like that, or that you are somehow a sinner that needs to be ostracized or something like that. It was important enough. I wanted to circle back around. Um, if you still have questions about that or that's still not hitting the right way, let's have a conversation. Uh, I just want to make sure no one feels like we're trying to push that group out. It's been pushed out by the church in the past, and that's damage we don't want to do. So I know that's a little off topic for today, but I, I wanted to make sure we hit that. So back to today, though. So last week, we talked about Cain's personal responsibility, right? Um, having to ask ourselves, what is the sin that we're wrestling? Where are, the, where are the places we've missed the mark? And what do we have to do to take a next step towards making those things right, whether it's for ourselves or for the people around us? But this week, we're going to look at the same story while adding in the genealogy that comes next and ask ourselves, sure, we have personal responsibility, but what is our moral responsibility towards our brothers and sisters around us? When we see something like the shooting at Michigan State, what is our responsibility to hold uh, in that particular space? Because that's what Cain is essentially asking when he's asking, am I my brother's keeper? He's asking, what's my moral responsibility towards Abel in this particular case? In essence, when Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper, what he's saying is, listen, God, how is it my issue if Abel is too weak to defend himself? What's my moral responsibility towards my brother? Why does it matter how my actions affect his life? Am I morally responsible for him? Which is an interesting way to think about it. 
See, last week we showed how Genesis 3 and 4 are related to each other. There's a theme that runs through both stories, and then it's God's desire to teach humanity that they're called to a greater calling than the animals. In Genesis 3, what we see is that, 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 um, that we, we see God give Adam and Eve a command to follow their natural instincts in certain things, rule, subdue, and cultivate. But he asks them to supersede their natural instincts to eat when it comes to the tree. Right? Be better than the animals in that particular way. Animals function only on their natural instincts, and God is asking Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 to, to, to rise above their natural instincts, and he's asking Cain in Genesis 4 to rise above his. Because essentially what's happening in, in Genesis 4 is that Cain is, is functioning like an animal, like in pure instinct. Right? Cain sees Abel, and Abel has something he wants, which in this case is actually God's favor. And so if Abel has it and Cain doesn't, he's going to take it from him if he can, right? That's how animals work, right? Now, one of, the, one of my favorite things to do, and it's pretty nerdy, I get it, but I love to watch nature documentaries. Anyone else? Is there any other? See, it's a few of you out there, right? Yeah. I love it. They're, they're great. In a nature documentary, have you ever seen a pride of lions take down, a, let's say, a wildebeest or something? Yeah? So first of all, gory, I get that. Also kind of cool because they're powerful and awesome, but you know, you get it. Uh, what, so you, a pride of lions goes and they take down a wildebeest. Now a pride of lions that hunts is all made up of females, right? The females of the, of the lion pack do the hunting. So they start, they, get, they, get their, they start eating the thing that they killed, but what happens when the male lion shows up? That's right, everybody has to scatter, right? The male lion doesn't, uh, doesn't get the kill, uh, he doesn't do any of the work, uh, but he's bigger than everybody else, and so when he shows up, everybody else has to get away until he's done, right? The animalistic nature is that the, 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 more, the most powerful beast gets what he wants, right? I don't, he has no moral claim to the, to the food that's, that's sitting there. He's just stronger, and so he takes it. Essentially, that's what's happening with Cain. Abel has something that he wanted, God's favor. Cain sees himself as stronger than Abel, so he takes it from him, just like, the, just like the male lion does to the female pride. So Cain then asks God the question, am I morally responsible for Abel? If he didn't want to be killed, he should have been stronger, which is exactly how the animal kingdom works. I think that idea, even though that seems simple to us, and we go, of course, killing is bad, and of course we can do better than the animals in that way, that same kind of thinking, though, still penetrates our world around us today. What is our moral responsibility towards each other? Like I said, it's strange, even providential, how often our messages ring extra true on the Sunday that they're delivered. Because we're living in the aftermath, of, like we said, of the things that are happening at Michigan State, one that hits close to home to us, with us, and it forces me and probably many of you to wrestle with that again. What is our moral responsibility in this particular case? We all, there, was, there was one aspect. Um, I'm going to skip that part, sorry. The question of moral responsibility matters, right? It's one that we as Christians must wrestle with, how do we respond to things uh, like what happened here or just the other moral things that are happening in the world? What are, how are we responsible for one, for one another? 
And the way that our general conversation tends to go, we tend to pit one side against another. We tend to pit personal responsibility against moral responsibility. When it comes to something like what happened at MSU, we have one side that say guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? That, they, the more, that, that, that that's where we are in that particular space. That it's all personal responsibility and nothing else. The other side is entirely a gun problem. We, we pit personal responsibility and moral responsibility against each other. We tend to treat these two as, as though they're total opposites to each other, that, they, that they're not things that can play with each other at all. And so we have to choose which matters most in all of these different cases. But that's not how the Bible sees it. That's not how God presents it either. Let's actually go back to our story and take a look at how God interacts with, this, with Cain in the second half. So last week, we talked about uh, the sacrifice part. We talked about the personal responsibility of Cain. Uh, but let's look at the second part of chapter 4 today. So Cain has killed Abel, and God calls him out. So we start in Genesis 4, verse 10, which says, The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. So I want to spend a few minutes on this particular part of the passage today. I want to point out a few things that I hope we can notice. The first question I want to ask is why this particular punishment? It's, it's a story that, I've been, that I think a lot of us are familiar with because we tell it often, the story of Cain and Abel. But as I was reading it again this time, I noticed how strange the punishment actually is. Why does God choose to punish Cain in this way? It seems weird to me, right? Cain murders Abel. Or Abel. It's evil that he murdered Abel. Um, but what, so what punishments would you assume he would receive? As I was thinking about it, the, the first one that comes to mind would be capital punishment. You killed somebody, and so I kill you, right? Uh, we see that throughout the ancient world in particular. That was the most common way to treat something like this. If you murder someone, then we take your life as well. Now, maybe that's a little harsh, and we want God to do better than that. Okay, fine. So then perhaps uh, incarceration. We're going to lock you away so you can't hurt anybody else. Something we see as well. That seems like it would fit the crime. That's how we would do it today. Or maybe it's, it's an act of repayment. I mean, it's some kind of community service or some kind of, uh, of, of contribution to something to help, help fix what you did. All of those punishments seem to fit the crime better for me, in my mind at least, than what God actually does. Instead, though, God proclaims two different punishments. First... Excuse me. First, you're going to be a restless wanderer. And second, the ground won't produce crops for you anymore. Which is, again, a strange kind of thing. So what's going on here? If we're going to understand that, let's start with Cain's fear. Because it gives us some insight into Cain's mind. God tells Cain he's going to be a wanderer. And what does Cain say? He says, you can't do that. If people find me, they're going to kill me. Now, there, there's a question here of who are these people, um, because as we've been going through Scripture right now, there should only be three of them. You have Adam, Eve, and Cain. So who, is, who are the rest of them? What is that about? 
Uh, we're actually not going to talk about that today at all, sorry. Um, if you want to talk about it later, we'll have to grab coffee or something like that. But I, wanted to, I don't want to point out another point in the midst of that. Cain is worried that other people may kill him, which gives us some insight into how Cain thinks about the world. Cain is the first murderer. He's the first person to kill another, and now he assumes something, something that he probably ought not assume, because my guess is he hasn't ever witnessed a murderer around. When Cain goes out, he assumes everyone is like him. I've killed somebody, which means if people find me, they're going to be like me, and they're going to kill me too. I, killed, if, if I was stronger than Abel, but if I run into somebody stronger than me, and they want what I have, they'll take it, because that's how the world works. Cain assumes everyone is like him, which isn't surprising when we start to think about the nature of sin. Sin has that effect. It makes us believe that we are just our worst moments. Maybe you felt that before. Maybe you failed in one way or another and then began to define yourself by that failure. Our language doesn't help with that often either. So often we don't talk about a person who struggles with alcohol. We call them an alcoholic. We give them a label, a value, a, a category to fall into that says the thing that you do is part of your definition. The same is true with a lot of the ways we use our language. You're, you're a cheater or a liar. The thing that you've done becomes your identifying marker. Sin has this, this ability to make us be the thing that we've done or, and assume others are the same. Sin tells us you are your worst moments. And in Cain's case, we see that here too. He's now believed, his, he, he's now believed he is his worst moment and he assumes everyone else must be too. If you're God, then, what do you do? Now, we've talked about this for the, in, in the previous series, that where we start the story matters and how we view God matters. And in this case, that, matter, that is really important here as well. Because I firmly believe two things. First, nothing that God asks of us is arbitrary. It's always for a purpose or a reason. He's trying, he's trying to guide us into growth either closer to him or closer to each other in those particular things. And second, that his goal is always restoration. That each thing that God asks us to do is for our benefit. He wants to see us become stronger and better. If that's true then, what's God doing in this particular space? How is God trying to restore Cain? Is the question that we have to ask. Well, at the beginning of the story, we're told that Cain has a job. Does anyone remember what Cain's job was? The farmer, right? Cain was a farmer. We're also told that Abel has a job. Does anybody remember what Abel's job was? Shepherd, right. You guys whisper really quietly. You can say it louder. It's okay. So in other words, <clears throat> Cain's a farmer. He stays in the same spot and tends the fields. That was his job. That's how he did things. Abel has a different job. He's a shepherd. He raised animals, meaning... Uh, now, a lot of us, when we think of shepherds, we think about it in our modern context. We don't really have, especially if you're in America, we don't have wandering shepherds. It's just not a thing that we have. Our, our, our animals are all in, like, industrial farms. Not all of them, but many, right? We think of big pens filled with cows or chickens or whatever it might be that kind of stay stationary. That's not how you would think of a shepherd in the Middle East, even modern-day Middle East, but in particular, ancient Middle East. Shepherds had to wander, because if you've been to Israel, there isn't, 
it's, it, there's a lot of barren land. And so if you want to find enough food for your cattle, you have to walk around with them to find the different grasses that are scattered throughout these sp particular spaces. Shepherds are always on the move, depending on the season and where the rains are and all of those kinds of things. So then, Cain's original job is to be a farmer, to stay put and tend the ground. Abel's job is to wander as a shepherd. So what is God doing here? God's punishment for Cain is if you're going to survive, you're going to need to find a new job. You can't stay a farmer. You have to be a wanderer. And how would you stay alive as a wanderer in the ancient world? You become a shepherd. In other words, Cain's punishment is learning the job of his brother, the one that he just killed. How is God going to redeem the story of Cain? He's going to ask him to literally walk in Abel's shoes to do the job that Abel did, to see the world the way Abel saw it. In other words, what God is saying, if you really want to see the world differently, I'm going to need you to walk in the shoes of your brother. I want you to work to see the world through his eyes, and hopefully by doing that, you'll be able to see why what you did was so wrong. In a world where Cain can only observe the animals, what he did is what the animals do. And yet God is calling him for a, to a higher moral responsibility towards other human beings. Now, I don't think we can overemphasize this point. As we wrestle with the question, am I my brother's keeper? As we wrestle with how we care for one another, you, we have to start in this particular spot. Last week, we saw that Cain's issues stem from a place of self-centeredness, of self-focus, of the desire to be the God of his own life. One of the most important things we can do then, if that's something that we're wrestling with, is to take time to put, us in the, put ourselves in the shoes of those around us, to try to understand what makes them tick and where they're coming from. And we don't naturally do that, not on our own anyway. It's much, much easier for us to just tend towards the direction of generalization or categorization. Rather than getting to know a person, to just put them into a category, a stereotype, and just assume that they're functioning in that way. Now, I've shared this story before here for some of you, but I had an experience with this firsthand a number of years ago. In my previous church, I started at Alpha, which we do here as well, but it looked a lot different when I was over there. The Alpha over at Ivanrest consisted almost entirely of young black men. Um, who lived, who actually started, but most of which had, at the beginning at least, had come from juvenile justice, right? So they had just come out of juvie and now we're in this particular alpha program. <clears throat> when I started that particular program, I, I had no, I, I, had, I had ideas what it was like, what racism was like, or what, what, what the race issues were like. But, not re but I didn't really understand it until I actually got time to know these young men. It was about three weeks after we had started when I realized I was so deeply in over my head I had no idea what to do. Um, I, was, I wasn't able to relate. I was in an entirely different spot. And so what we did is we ended up scrapping the program of what we were going to do, and I just, just had a conversation. I said to him, hey, I grew up a rich white kid. That's my background. I have no idea what it's like to be a black man in Grand Rapids. Tell me about it. And so we spent the next three weeks talking about that. What is it like to be poor? What is it like to be, uh, in this case, black in Grand Rapids? What, what are your experiences? Share those with me. 
And in that space, when I took time to get to know those guys, where it wasn't just a black-white issue, it wasn't just a race issue, it was now I can see Devante, or Jalen, or Ewat. Now I can see them in this space, and, and I can react, interact with their particular experiences, and everything shifted for me. My understanding of how these things work was different because I had taken time to walk in their shoes, or at least listen to their, the walk that they did in their particular shoes. It would have been easy to generalize in this case. Many of them came in with baggage and things that weren't good that we had to try to, that, that places they were missing the mark that we tried to redirect. But when you start to hear their stories, you started to understand why or where they came from, and it changed the way we interacted entirely. At the same experience, the same time in my life, we were over, I worked on the street, and so Calvin High School was right across the street. While I was working there, the school reached out to me and four students had come out as gay in that particular space. And so Calvin asked, hey, would you be willing, they, want, they wanted to gather together as a group um, just to talk about life. Uh, and they, so Calvin reached out to us and said, hey, would you be willing to lead a group for these kids? Uh, and we said, yeah, for sure. On, on two conditions, what we'll do is I will, will proclaim that God loves them and so do we. That's it, that's all I'm willing to do. Um, so if, there's, if you want more than that, can't do that. Um, but we'll do that. And they said, okay. So for three years, we met with this group of students during lunchtime to let them know God loves you and so do we. Now it was interesting in that space because just like it was with Alpha, when we started to hear their stories, how, what their experience with church was or school was or God was, it forced us into a different kind of perspective. Forced me to in interact with those spaces differently. The first thing that was very, very clear is they did not believe that God loved them. Not at all, and they were convinced the church didn't. So when you start to hear those stories, how we interact with that, how, how I could interact with that group of people to dramatically shifted when we took some time to understand where they were coming from. In this particular story, when we're asking ourselves, what is our moral responsibility to our brothers, this story begins by God telling Cain, you need to understand where your brother was coming from. You need to take time to walk in his shoes. Now, it's easy for us to not do that, to generalize instead. To just pick a category, this is just about the blacks, or the gays, or the Muslims, or you pick your topic. We love to generalize in that way. But when we're asking ourselves, am I my brother's keeper? What is my moral responsibility towards them? We're not allowed to categorize in that way. At the very least, we need to do the work to figure out where the person we're interacting with is coming from, what's going on in their life, and to walk as much as possible in their shoes. I promise you, if you do that, your perspective on groups of people will be forced to shift. When I worked with the students at Calvin, I had parents who had hard lines set, this is how this works, until their student or their brother or sister or niece or nephew came out and they were forced to change everything, to look at it differently, to see them differently. I promise you, if you walk in someone else's shoes, your perspective on them will, cannot stay the same. And we see that in our story here today as well. So God asked Cain to walk into his brother's shoes. Now, what happens in the story, though? What does Cain do? Well, Genesis 4, 17. It says, Cain knew his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain 
was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now, I can imagine God looking down at Cain. He's just hoped that he would walk a little bit in his brother's shoes and learn something about what humanity is supposed to be in that way. But does Cain learn anything? He doesn't. I can actually imagine God's exasperated sigh right here. God says, I want you to actually walk in Abel's shoes. And what does Cain do? He goes, nah, I don't want to. I'm going to build a city instead. And so he does. He doesn't move anywhere. He just plants himself down and he builds a, particular, he builds a city. If I can't produce from the ground, he thinks I'll get other people to do it for me. He doesn't deal with his actions. Even though God nudges him in the right direction, Cain's not interested. Now, what's interesting here is as I was reading through it, one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is, well, then Cain gets off the hook. Sure, he can't produce from the ground, but he builds a city instead. So now he's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got a city. He feels like he's doing pretty good for himself, right? But this is where the genealogy matters. See, God wants Cain to learn a lesson, to see the world through Abel's eyes. And so God gives Cain the opportunity to learn from his mistakes, but Cain refuses that opportunity. Instead, he looks for a way out. And what we're given next is a genealogy, the line of Cain. And unfortunately, it's heartbreaking. Cain has a child who has a child who has a child, generation after generation, each living in cities, and you're even told they develop some cool new technology, right? We're told that that comes out of the line of Cain in that way. But there's a theme that we see run, run through that whole thing, culminating in verse 23 of chapter 4, five generations after Cain. We're getting the declaration of a guy named Lamech, who is one of, he's, he's, comes, he's at the end of the line of Cain in, in Genesis 4 here. And Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77. So what we see here is five generations later, Cain's family is still dealing with the consequences of Cain's sin. In Cain's case, might made right. If I'm stronger than you, I can take your stuff. And it's, there isn't growth. And we actually see it maybe even worse in the story of Lamech, perhaps even more animalistic. The sin of the father is passed on to the son. And the line of Cain is filled with violence and aggression and taking what they want for themselves. So what do we do with all of this? Now I want us to take two things away from this particular passage. Realizing we still have a number of weeks to talk about responsibility. The first thing I want us to see is when we're asking ourselves the question of what's my responsibility towards my brother, I want us to, we need to reflect on God's request to Cain. We must do what we can to understand where our brother or sister is coming from, what they're wrestling with, and how they see the world. It's actually pretty awesome that we're talking about this the night we're going to start Common Ground as well. That's the goal of Common Ground is to help us understand where each person is coming from in that way. The second thing. Oh, sorry. So, that, yeah, so the first thing we want to see is that it's how important it is to walk in our brother's shoes, to see where they're coming from. We also realize that that's a theme that runs throughout Scripture as well. This, the idea of understanding where someone's coming from actually pops back up again, uh, probably most notably by Jesus himself in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 7.1, it says this, Do not judge, 
or you too will be judged. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and the measure you use will be used against you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. In this theme, it's the exact same thing that God is asking Cain to do, to understand where his brother is coming from. Because, you see, we often use this passage as just not casting judgment on people. But that's not what this passage is about. This isn't about final judgment at all. It's about making judgments about something, right? And we do that all the time. In the scripture, to be clear, humans are never given the right to cast final judgment. I've talked about that before. In the book of Jude, there's a weird passage in which Michael, the archangel Michael, is arguing with the devil about the body of Moses. It's strange. But Michael refuses to condemn the devil. So if Michael, the greatest non-God being that exists, can't condemn the devil who's the devil, then we are always out of bounds if we're casting someone's final judgment. That's, a, that's locked. It's different than making judgments about things, though. We're absolutely, it's absolutely appropriate for us to make judgments about things. There are certain things that are right, and there are certain things that aren't. There are certain things that lead to flourishing, and there are certain things that don't. That declaration is making a judgment, right? And we, we, ought, we can do that. But we need to keep this in mind, because this is also what relates to the story of Cain. What this is saying is not don't ever make judgments. If you read it carefully, that's, it's not saying that. What it's saying is don't make rash or quick or uninformed judgments. Do not judge or you will be judged. How? With the measure that you use. Nobody wants a quick judgment made about them, so make sure the measure you're using for someone else, you would be, feel comfortably being applied to you. Goes on then, when we look at the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye and pay no attention to the plank in our own, what, it's saying, what does it say to do then? It says, so then, remove the plank from your eye so you can do what? See clearly to help your brother, right? What this passage is saying is take the time to be able to see them well, walk in their shoes, understand where they're coming from, get to see their situation clearly in order to help them flourish. If you've ever had a speck of sawdust in your eye, it's not a comfortable thing, is it? It is something you want to get out right away. It's something that's hurting you and holding you back. You, got, you, know, you sit there with your eye kind of closed and water draining out of it. What Jesus is talking about here is the same thing that we see in the story of Cain. Take the time to get to know where the person is coming from. Remove your ignorance out of your own eyes so that you can see where they're coming from in order to help them well. Throughout Jesus' life, he pushes back on general categories. All we see throughout the ancient world that those categories existed in so many different spots. We don't hang out with Samaritans, they say. But Jesus does. We don't associate with tax collectors. And Jesus is like, but if you met Matthew or Zacchaeus, they're pretty cool dudes. Or this woman is an adulterer. We need to stone her, but Jesus just sees a woman instead. See, when we take the time to know one, someone, to see their humanity, to see their perspectives, their deep loves, their hurts, it changes everything about how we relate to them. Abstract ideas become personal. They have a face. And that face matters. Because there's no longer just the tax collectors, it's Zach. Yes. They probably called him Zach. They got close after that, I bet. There's no longer just the Muslims. There's Ahmed. There's no longer just the gays. It's John. 
We can't, it's, it, you can't generalize the categories anymore because now we see a face instead. See, we're called throughout Scripture, starting back in Genesis 4, to see other people's humanity. Because if we don't, we fall into the, into the same trap Cain does. Now, my guess is most of you won't kill someone. I really hope so, at least. But that doesn't mean we don't do damage. It was interesting. When I was at Calvin uh, Seminary to do my penance, because I got my MDiv from Cornerstone, so if you want to get ordained in the CRC, you got to do six months of penance at Calvin. They don't call it penance. I do. So... <laughs> When I was there, I was in a cohort uh, with, with three Asian families. Uh, and, um, and at that particular time, um, Emma was about four or five years old-ish, right, Jen? Somewhere around there. And, uh, and one of the families uh, that was in my cohort had kids her age. And so we invited them over for dinner. And when they were coming over, uh, Jen and I wanted to do a little social experiment in this space. Now, Emma, up to this point, sorry, Emma, I didn't tell you what you're going to tell this story. You probably don't even remember it, so... Oh, good. You do remember it. Excellent. So, uh, so partway through the semester, we, uh, we invited them over for dinner, and Jen and I wanted to do a little social experiment. Um, up until this point in Emma's life, she really hadn't been around people who looked different than her. Uh, just our neighborhood doesn't look different, and her school didn't look that different. And so we were wondering how she would react. She might not have even been in school. I don't think she was in school. So it doesn't matter. Either way, she hadn't been around people that looked different. And so they come over, they come, these, these families come over for dinner, and the kids go play in the basement. And we were just wondering how Emma would react. Um, now, it was a great time. Everybody had a good time. And when they left, we had a conversation with Emma. I just simply asked, uh, who did you play with? Right? There was a number of kids. And just wanted to say, who did you play with? And she was like, I played with the tall girl. OK, good, good. That's a great, great description. Uh, which one was that again? You know, just kind of prodding a little bit to see what she would say, to see if, if, if some of the things that, that I would expect her to notice were things she would notice. And she didn't. She was like, Dad, the tall one. Like, are you? What's happening right now? Like, the one that was taller than the rest? Like, uh, like, okay, good. And I didn't want to press it any further than that. Her answer, was, her answer was straightforward and it was simple. And I learned something that day, right? Uh, <clears throat> Emma did, in, in a four and a five-year-old, our concepts of race or difference around those things just weren't there. She played with a tall girl, right? Yeah, she didn't, she didn't talk about skin color. She didn't talk about eye shape or any of those kinds of things. Those just weren't on her radar. She saw another little girl that was just a little taller than her. The reason I share that particular story is because if we don't do the work that God wanted Cain to, if we don't take seriously what Jesus is telling us here in, in, in Matthew 7, to walk in the other people's shoes to see where they're coming from, we can either ignorantly or unintentionally pass on destructive characteristics. Things like racism or ignorance Whether we like it or not, our uninformed opinions of people are passed on to our kids, like in the story of Cain. If we don't do the hard work of seeing something, something from another person's perspective, not only will our kids then not gain that work that we do for ourselves, we actually might do damage because we might involuntarily take our ignorance, our kids might take our ignorance as truth. And so five generations, we end up in the space where Cain's family does. The, the lesson he refused to learn gets passed on, whether he meant to or not, to his kids, ending in a space in which Lamech says, if Cain kills 
seven, I kill 700. For us inside the church, we do not have the privilege of not taking these things seriously. We don't have the privilege of generalizing people or not seeing them for who God made them to be. Throughout scripture, it's a theme that's unarguable that each time Jesus comes to someone, he views them as a human being, as someone who matters, who's someone who has value, who has someone, someone that even if the rest of the world rejects them, he does not. He takes time to get to know who they are. One of, the most, one of my favorite lines in all of scripture, which I know I use too often so it makes it less meaningful, but this is true. In the story of the Samaritan woman who meets Jesus, a woman who's been rejected by the rest of her society, the reason she's coming out to the well in the middle of the day is because she can't go out with the women in the morning because she's been rejected. She meets Jesus, a rabbi, who actually calls her out for some things that in her life that aren't good, right? Hey, you have seven husbands. How's that working out for you? Not well, right? They have this interaction, and the woman actually goes back to the city to tell people about the interaction she just had. And her, and, her, and her line is literally this. Hey, I just met a man who told me everything I ever did, including the bad stuff. I think it might be God. He saw her down to her core of who she was and didn't reject her in that space, and it drew her to him. He gave her dignity the rest of the world didn't, and it changed everything in her life. If our example is Jesus, that's something we can't reject. We live in a world in which moral responsibility is complicated. How we fix things is tricky. When it comes to something like what happened at MSU this week, I don't know the solution. I don't know how to fix it. But I do know that I've been called by God to at least put myself in the shoes of the parents, of the students, of the faculty in that space, to understand where they're coming from, to understand what they're feeling, to understand what they're going through. Because if I do that, the silly political debates on one side or another don't matter anymore, because that's not the point. There's something more important here that we have to engage with, right? And so that's our challenge this particular week out of this story. As we look at the story of Cain, God challenges us to walk as much as possible in our brother's or sister's shoes. He also doesn't let us off the hook because if we don't, there's some serious consequences to that. Passing on things intentionally or unintentionally to the next generation. If the church isn't willing to do that work, if we're not willing to wrestle in that space to try to see people through God's eyes, I don't know who else will, and I don't know how we bring this world back together at all, which I think is another charge the scripture gives us over and over again. So the challenge this week is, where are there groups of people in your life that you haven't taken the time to understand where they're coming from? Maybe it's out of conflict, maybe it's out of disagreement, maybe you've just generalized people because you didn't want to take the work to get to know where they're coming from. What's the next step that you can take to understand their situation a little bit better? Maybe it's getting to know a Muslim or someone who, uh, someone who, is, who, uh, who, who lines different sexually than you do, whether it's homosexuality or whatever that might be. Maybe it's getting to know someone in that space. Maybe it's getting to so know somebody of a different race. I don't know. But I don't think we can ignore it. Will you pray with me? 
Father God, we just want to first start by just acknowledging the fact that far too often we don't take the time to get to know those who are different than us well. That we don't take the time to, to see the world through their eyes, to, to see them through your eyes. God, we pray that as we go through our week this week, that you give us eyes to see the people you've created in the way that you see them. Amen.